I next met with Dr. Stephen Ansel, and to begin, we continued the discussion about CLL, but this time focusing on maintenance therapy with anti-CD20 antibodies after induction. We began with Abstract 20, evaluating rituximab maintenance. This abstract really looked at patients with COL, specifically who had been treated with standard induction therapy, and typically they would have received FCR regimen in three-quarters of the patients, or alternatively have received bendamustine plus rituximab in about 25% of the patients. And patients then were randomized to receive either rituximab maintenance or alternatively an observation watchful waiting approach. And not surprisingly, the progression-free survival was at a 17-and-a-half-month period favored the rituximab arm compared to the observation arm. And about 85% of the patients compared to 75% of the patients were still doing well if they received maintenance rituximab, suggesting that maintenance rituximab may prolong the durability of benefit from initial therapy. And so overall, the conclusion of the authors was that this regimen with rituximab maintenance approach was feasible, and although they did see somewhat increased potential infections, they felt that it was efficacious and really deserved further evaluation. So I think in common practice, this maintenance approach is not something that is completely standard, but I think in the future, certainly something that's going to be evaluated. And we'll talk about another paper using anti-CD20 approach in CLL, but what's been looked at up to now in general? I know people have not been using our maintenance very much in CLL. What data do we have prior to this on the question? Yeah, so we don't actually have much data, and I think a lot of the data has not been randomized controlled trial data. So hence, I think that was the importance of this particular trial and additional trials that I'm sure we'll discuss. But I think at this point, this is something that is being thought about. I think obviously with other small molecules, including abrutinib and other agents which are being given for a prolonged period of time, this whole concept of prolonged therapy is certainly something that's kind of on the forefront of many people's minds. I think at this point, that's still across most indolent lymphomas, a kind of an open question. Clearly, if you do something compared to not doing something, it's quite likely that you will get a progression-free survival benefit. I guess the biggest challenge is just, does it really make a significant difference overall to how long patients live? And I think that's what's uncertain. And in this abstract, there was not an overall survival benefit. So if one takes the world of follicular lymphoma, there has been a comparison between a retreatment approach compared to a maintenance approach with very similar results. So I think this is still one of those questions as to whether it's really necessary to be treating people on a prolonged basis or whether you can treat, then give them a, shall we say, treatment-free period and then return to treatment down the line. So I think this is still kind of an open debate. And I guess, as you say, a lot depends on the toxicity. You have this issue potentially of infections. But I guess, you know, even without a survival benefit, it seems like if there's a clinically significant delay in having to sort of go through the whole experience of having a progression or maybe even complications from it, I mean, I'm seeing people sort of walking with their feet in terms of follicular lymphoma. Do you generally use, for example, maintenance after chemo rituximab, for example, in follicular lymphoma? 
Right, and I think we do, and I think in our practice, the main challenge is just to determine how high risk patients are and how high risk we think they are related to their likelihood of relapse. So if we believe that they're in a group of patients where relapse is kind of imminent, then I think maintenance rituximab or any maintenance therapy makes the world of sense. I think in a case of a patient who's relatively low risk and a very prolonged period of no therapy may actually be possible, then it might be a better strategy to take a watchful waiting approach. And if one looks at the resort trial in follicular lymphoma as an example of relatively low risk patients, there the retreatment versus maintenance didn't seem to be different. I think in contrast, when you've given chemotherapy plus rituximab because you felt the patient was a high risk patient, then I think there's a significant benefit potentially to maintenance. Do you see the same sort of paradigm fitting into CLL, individualizing whether or not you use maintenance based on risk? I think that's something that really hasn't really been fleshed out exactly as yet, but I do see that as something down the line, particularly because CLL has a plethora of prognostic factors that are well established. And I think based on that, particularly patients with known predictors of early progression, a maintenance approach may be particularly beneficial in those patients. I guess the other thing that you, know, you can't help thinking, you know, having seen the obinutuzumab type 2 and ICD-20 versus rituximab, at least in CLL, showing an advantage, you wonder how, and I know there are trials looking at obinutuzumab maintenance. Right. And I think, again, as agents become better and the benefit may be greater, I think that actually may make some of the maintenance strategies be even more efficacious. I think also there's a bunch of other additional molecules which could be either added to or used instead of. And I think those all, again, are going to be very promising for the future. So there was another big maintenance paper in CLL reported. This one was looking at Ofatum uh, abstract number 21. Right. Yeah, so this, again, was a randomized trial. This was comparing patients who, as you said, received ofatumumab or no further therapy. And again, there was a benefit for patients who received ofatumumab in comparison to those who were observed, and it was highly significant. Progression-free survival for the ofatumumab arm was 28 months, and for the observed arm was 15 months. But as we touched on a little earlier, if you looked at survival as an outcome difference, there actually was no difference between the two groups. So I guess one difference between these two papers is that the rituximab paper was patients getting first and second line therapy, and the ofatumumab one was, I guess, second and third? Correct. So again, this wasn't necessarily a frontline therapy, and patients might have received a variety of other regimens ahead of time. Does, you know, indirectly, does it seem to be a similar benefit in both rituximab and ofatumumab here, or you just can't really say? I think, again, you have to be a little cautious comparing directly between trials, but certainly if one looks at the overall outcome curves on the graphs that were shown, the outcome really looks quite similar. So I think one could probably lump this into a kind of combined group to say, you know, CD20-directed therapy versus an observation kind of approach. There can certainly appear to be a benefit in progression-free survival for patients that receive an antibody approach rather than observed. So the other two maintenance papers I wanted to ask you about, in this case, rituximab maintenance as well as bortezomib maintenance, was in mantle cell. And there we have seen data in the past that was you know, favorable for maintenance, but these were additional data sets beginning with abstract 146, looking at R maintenance after four courses of R DHAP, followed by transplant. 
Right, so this kind of built in many respects on some of the data that already existed from elderly patients with mantle cell lymphoma, where treating with an R-CHOP-like approach and then following it with maintenance is kind of felt to be a standard for those patients. And again, the issue here is these tend to be more likely to relapse patients. And so in this trial, they specifically gave our DHAP for four cycles, did an autologous transplant, and then looked at the benefit of treating patients with rituximab maintenance in younger patients. So this was specifically in younger patients. I think it's also important to notice in this trial that they gave three years of rituximab maintenance, and the analysis is really done right kind of pretty close to the end of that therapy. But I think, again, similar to themes that we have been discussing, the two-year event-free survival was better in the rituximab arm compared to the patients who had a watchful waiting approach. It was 93% compared to 81%. Again, not entirely surprising in that you're actually specifically treating one group versus completed treatment and now observing the second. But I think their conclusions said that similar to what had been reported in elderly patients with mantle cell lymphoma, the use of rituximab in a maintenance strategy after autologous stem cell transplant, they felt was creating a rationale for a new standard of care in younger patients with mantle cell lymphoma. And we're always on the lookout for data sets that are changing what investigators do. And when the initial data came out on our maintenance, again, it was an elderly non-transplant patients. People pretty much seemed to adapt it, although they kind of shortened it down to two years. But when you said, well, what about after transplant or high-dose therapy in younger patients? They said, no data, and then we're not going to do it. Is that the way you were approaching this issue prior to ASH, and did this change what you did? Yeah, so I think typically in our practice, we would have completed the transplant process and then observed patients. But I think this makes a very strong case for the fact that you have one further thing that one could do, and that is then to continue to treat patients with maintenance rituximab based on this randomized trial of this therapy. So I think overarchingly, a discussion about the fact that mantle cell lymphoma patients are really destined in many respects to progress everything you can do to keep them in remission for as long as possible is very reasonable. And certainly the addition of maintenance approaches such as a maintenance rituximab is a very reasonable thing to be doing in patients, particularly in younger patients, where obviously keeping them in remission is a good thing. And knowing also that the number of additional effective options is limited, although there are obviously other agents one could use. I've been kind of flashing on some of the conversation I've had with your colleagues about multiple myeloma and that whole paradigm, both with maintenance, both in older patients and younger transplant patients and the way they've evolved. And it's interesting to see the same thing sort of happening with lymphoma. What about this? We're seeing more now data about using bortezomib earlier. And there was a phase two trial of RCHOP plus bortezomib as induction followed by bortezomib maintenance. Any comments on that paper? Yeah, so I think, again, this builds on some of the findings in other diseases where maintenance approaches using bortezomib can be beneficial. And I think, again, in this particular study, patients received an RCHOP bortezomib approach with then a maintenance schedule. Pretty much you got about two weeks of treatment every three months and kind of got that for about two years. And I think this is a phase two trial, so not a randomized study. But I think in a fairly sizable cohort, 
the results were really encouraging. Progression-free survival at two years was 62% with an 85% overall survival rate. And I think the conclusion was also that nearly a third of the patients had a progression-free survival of five years and longer. So I think it just made the case that this can be safely given, reasonably well-tolerated, and results look promising. But I think before this becomes something that we would standardly do in practice, this would require a randomized trial. How about abstract 625, another paper looking at the so-called R-squared regimen, lenalidomide rituximab. This is a phase two study in mantle cell. Yeah, this again was very interesting. This particular regimen is really trying to look toward a chemo-free, if you like, regimen overall. And in this particular study, they used lenalidomide kind of in an induction phase and then subsequently switched it over into a maintenance phase. And in a sizable population of 38 patients, they again showed that this was pretty effective, quite promising, overall response rate 85%, two-year progression-free survival 84%. And for a regimen that really is well-tolerated, has modest side effects, and is quite convenient, I think this certainly is a very promising regimen. And we do have evidence in other lymphomas that this combination is really promising, particularly in follicular lymphoma. So I think that's not entirely a surprise. So how about abstract 626? This is a phase two study. We've been talking about lenalidomide rituximab. This is just lenalidomide versus best investigator choice in relapsed mantle cell, the SPRINT study. Right. So this actually is a randomized phase two trial, as you mentioned, and it looked at a variety of different single agents. So clearly the idea was to see how lenalidomide stacked up against other regimens. And those other treatments could be cytarabine, could be rituximab, could be gemcitabine, could be fludarabine, and could even be chlorambucil. So there really were a variety of different options. And it was a two-to-one randomization so that about 170 patients ended up receiving lenalidomide and 84 of the patients received investigator choice. And the object was to see whether there was significant benefit to progression-free survival. And the risk reduction for the progression-free survival at a year and a half was 39%. So when one looked at lenalidomide compared to investigator choice, the progression-free survival was eight and a half months compared to five months in favor of lenalidomide. And overall response rate also favored lenalidomide at 40% overall response rate compared to 11% for investigator choice. So this all would suggest that lenalidomide does have a role and lenalidomide does have activity, particularly in multiply relapsed patients. I think, though, one has to caution a little bit because, you know, progression-free survival of eight compared to five months is only a modest benefit. And the response rates really across the study remain low. So... I think tying into our conversation related to lenalidomide combinations, I think as single agent, this is a tool, but not a particularly dramatic tool in this group of patients. Although it looks like they had a 40% response rate in lenalidomide versus 11% in sort of the control arm. Correct. So I do think that's certainly promising. I guess the point I was just making is that the benefit is not extremely durable in that the progression-free survival is eight months. Right now, you know, there are three approved agents. We talked about a couple of lenalidomide and bortezomib, obviously, as well as ibrutinib. How do you approach sort of sequencing these agents in relapsed mantle cell? 
You know, I think in our practice, abrutinib, certainly in the relapsed and refractory patients, has shown very high response rates, and the response rates have appeared to be quite durable. We've also been able to see that almost over time, some of those responses deepen and kind of improve. So our practice has been to sequence abrutinib ahead of lenalidomide in these patients. So speaking of ibrutinib, there was a paper 627 looking at ibrutinib rituximab in a phase two study of relapsed mantle cell. Can you talk about what they showed? Right. So this was a study out of MD Anderson building on the previous data that had been published in New England Journal, which had really shown that abrutinib as a single agent in relapsed mantle cell lymphoma patients had elicited a very promising high response rate of 68%. So the question was just if you added rituximab to abrutinib, would this really be able to benefit patients to a greater degree? And 50 patients were enrolled in the study. Patients had received the very typical standard treatments, including hypersevad and other bortezomib regimens, and a variety of them had also received lenalidomide prior to this. And the response rate was very encouraging in that the overall response rate in the study was 87%. Complete response rates were 38%. So all of this really would suggest that the combination was highly effective in a pretty refractory group of patients. They also made the point that in patients with a low proliferative rate, the response rate was very high, 100% overall, with a, at least half the patients having a complete response. So I think all of that suggests the combination is very effective. I guess the only disappointing thing for me is that the best response rates were seen in the low proliferative group. And in many respects, the challenging patients are the ones with the tumors that are more proliferative and sometimes those with blastic morphology. And overall, that's a group of patients that is quite difficult to treat. And although this is a effective therapy, the response rates were only 50% overall response rate in that particular group. This may be kind of a basic question, but globally, do you have any sense what rituximab adds to ibrutinib and mantle cell? You know, I think a little bit of this is guesswork because we're working off phase two trials that might be sort of sequential. But if you say the treatment of abrutinib alone resulted in an overall response rate of 70% and the overall response rate was now nearly 90%, I would put it at about 15% or thereabouts. And that might also be true because if one thinks about R-CHOP compared to CHOP chemotherapy and other regimens where R has been added, the benefit is typically in the 10 to 15% range. Any interest or thoughts about combining abinutuzumab with ibrutinib? Right. I think certainly as we look to the future, we're looking for adding the most effective agents. And so certainly because abinutuzumab is looking very promising and potentially more effective, I think that that's where the future needs to go. So let's talk a little bit about some of the papers presented with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, beginning with Abstract 391, looking at PET-guided therapy. So this particular trial is in large-cell lymphoma patients, and I think what's really good about this study is it addressed what I think has sort of become a little bit of dogma, but they kind of questioned it specifically, and that was that if you take two patients with large-cell lymphoma and you treat them with two cycles of R-CHOP chemotherapy, and then study them by PET scan to determine if they have a positive result, in other words, a favorable PET compared to an unfavorable PET because there was something that still showed FDG positivity. They then took the patients and randomized those that had a negative PET between just finishing out typical R-CHOP chemotherapy, compared to finishing out R-CHOP chemotherapy and adding a little extra with two more doses of rituximab. 
And then they had a second part of the study which looked at the patients that had a positive PET scan. And the question is, well, should you just give a total of eight cycles of RCHOP or is it a good idea to intensify therapy to a more kind of Burkitt lymphoma chemotherapy regimen? And so in this study, it was a large study in 926 patients. And when we specifically looked at the patients that had a favorable PET scan, the question is, did the extra rituximab help at all? And it really failed to improve any outcome measures. In the group of patients which were smaller, but which were the people that had an unfavorable PET scan after two cycles of RCHOP, it did not seem that switching to a more intensive regimen really had a beneficial effect. So at this point, the PET scan is highly predictive of outcome, but it's not very clear that actually making a change in the treatment based on the PET scan is really making a difference to the outcome of patients. So do you think that this model of using, you know, sort of therapy adapted to PET scan response, you know, maybe is going to be useful, just we have to use different agents, maybe novel agents, you know, we've seen lenalidomide, even ibrutinib looked in this population. Do you think maybe patients who are not responding, maybe the modality should be shifted? I think that's a very good point, and I think that's certainly something that we need to think about because I think the sense has been in the past that just giving more intense approaches would be beneficial, but I don't think that that's holding up quite like we would hope. So my sense is that we need to use different modalities, and that's certainly where some of the novel agents may come into play, and seeing whether incorporating the best of all of those combinations may be our best choice for the future. What are some of the novel agents right now that you kind of think are most encouraging in terms of diffuse large B-cell, including the small molecules, as well as something like bevidotin? Right. So I think there have been a number of promising agents, and certainly antibody drug conjugates are promising. There are some new immunological approaches, including bite therapies and anti-PD-1 approaches that are being tested. Studies are still pretty small, so the exact efficacy of those approaches are still under question. And I would even say CAR T-cells may potentially in large-cell lymphoma patients who have refractory disease be potentially beneficial. So I think that kind of thinking might be what's necessary when you have a patient who has a positive PET scan after induction treatment or partway through induction therapy because just intensifying treatment does not clearly seem to benefit everybody. How about abstract 393, looking at RCHOP with or without radiation therapy in non-bulky limited stage diffuse large B-cell? This is a really interesting study because, as you may well know, there have been historically a number of trials that have looked at limited chemotherapy with radiation compared to more prolonged chemotherapy. And in fact, there's sort of been a standard of care approach in the past, which has been that a abbreviated course of chemotherapy with radiation would certainly be similar and would be the appropriate way to go. So this is a study that took patients with non-bulky, early-stage, limited-stage disease and treated them either with RCHOP14 for four cycles if they had good prognostic factors, or six cycles if they had less good prognostic factors. And then patients were randomized to either receive no additional therapy or to have consolidation with radiation therapy. They received 40 gray of treatment. And the interesting thing is that really rituximab added to the regimen seems to have made the results much more favorable compared to the historic data. 
And so when the comparison between the patients who received radiation versus no radiation was made, there did not seem to be a statistically significant difference between the two groups. So I think right now in non-bulky patients, different to bulky patients where radiation may certainly play a role, non-bulky patients, it's not clear that the addition of radiation therapy to R-CHOP chemotherapy is superior. And maybe it's best served to utilize the PET scan in patients who have a persistently positive PET scan and don't achieve a CR. Those may be the patients who would benefit from radiation therapy being added. Adding it across the board doesn't seem to make a difference. How do you approach these patients in this specific decision in your own practice outside a trial setting? I think in our practice, we've tended to move a little bit more away from radiation therapy. Part of it being based on the original Tom Miller trial, where although there was a significant difference initially in the first analysis of CHOP-treated patients who then received radiation seemingly doing better than those who received CHOP alone, with longer follow-up, the curve seemed to come back together again. And then with the addition of rituximab as highlighted in this trial, certainly the results seem to be a lot better. So in our practice, we tend to be more likely to limit the radiation therapy only to those that are PET positive on interim PET, particularly on interim PET. Patients that are still PET positive at the end of therapy, we tend to re-biopsy to be sure there's active disease we would consider them to have relapsed or not responded. So we were talking before about brentuximab vidotin, where we've seen so many exciting things in all types of different tumors. And Abstract 1745 looked at the interesting idea combining vidotin with R-CHOP up front, diffuse large B-cell. Right, and this builds a little bit on initial studies of brentuximab vidotin alone in patients who have large cell, relapsed large cell lymphoma, showing a response rate that was quite promising in patients that have CD30 expression, but interestingly, even in those who did not have CD30 expression detected by immunohistochemistry. So the sense was that it may be beneficial to add brentuximab vidotin to RCHOP chemotherapy in a phase two clinical trial to see whether this actually significantly benefits patients. So specifically patients with high risk by IPI, high risk disease, were included in the study. It was a two arm study, one arm receiving 1.2 milligrams per kilogram of brentuximab vidotin, the other receiving a higher dose of 1.8 milligrams per kilogram of brentuximab vidotin. I think overall, the treatment was quite well tolerated, always a concern of increased neuropathy. So they did see some neuropathy, but I think overall the assessment was that the neuropathy was manageable. But I think what was encouraging was that in this high-risk and intermediate high-risk group, the overall response rate was 92%, with a 60% complete response rate, which really seemed quite a lot better than what one would have expected from standard R-CHOP chemotherapy. So I think, obviously, additional information needs to be obtained from using this treatment approach, but I think the addition of brentuximab to R-CHOP chemotherapy is certainly looking quite promising. Where is this heading? Are there thoughts about a phase three study? And, you know, in other situations, they've dropped the vincristine combining with bevodotin. Where is this combination heading or this strategy heading? I think that's exactly where things are going. I think the sense is to see whether the addition of brentuximab actually can just replace vincristine. And so I know that the study is being expanded to have additional patients and utilizing brentuximab almost in the place of vincristine. So how about paper 628 presented by Dr. Chuchman, phase 2-3 multicenter randomized study 
comparing lenalidomide to investigator choice of therapy and diffuse larger B cell. So lenalidomide has shown efficacy in other previous studies in relapsed large cell lymphoma, but it would appear that particularly in the activated B cell type, there may be further benefits specifically for patients to be treated with lenalidomide. So this particular trial compared patients treated with lenalidomide compared to single agent investigator choice. And the investigator choice options were gemcitabine, rituximab, etoposide, and oxaliplatin. And lenalidomide was given 25 milligrams a day for three weeks on a four-week cycle. And in the study, it was 102 patients enrolled. Half of the patients had a germinal center type B-cell lymphoma, and half of them had the non-germinal center B-cell, the activated B-cell type. And when they looked at the outcomes, it was a little disappointing in that germinal center and non-germinal center diffuse large B-cell lymphoma had a similar overall response rate was a little bit of additional benefit potentially for the activated B-cell type when they did an analysis by gene expression profiling. And when they did an analysis to see if there was an overall response rate, it did favor lenalidomide. I think overall, this certainly suggests that lenalidomide has a role in patients with relapsed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and may specifically have a further role in the activated B-cell type. And is that thought being brought into the upfront setting? Yes, it is. So, in fact, a study by Greg Nowakowski, who's at Mayo Clinic, and a further study out of the French group has looked specifically at the addition of lenalidomide to RCHOP chemotherapy as frontline treatment to test and see whether, one, it's feasible, and two, whether it helps particularly the activated B-cell type subgroup do better. And both of those trials suggested that that may be true. There are now two large randomized trials, one looking at all comers with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, but specifically stratifying for the activated B-cell type versus germinal center B-cell type, and a second study that really requires you to have the activated B-cell type specifically to look and answer that question as to whether lenalidomide truly helps those patients do better than would typically be seen with RCHOP chemotherapy. Is lenalidomide as a single agent, a therapy that you use outside of protocol setting a diffuse large B-cell relapse disease right now, and how does it sort of work in? Yes, it is. This is obviously patients with relapsed and refractory large cell lymphoma, particularly those that have failed transplant, are challenging patients to treat. And so we tend to utilize clinical trials as our first line. But if patients have failed standard clinical trial and still are in good health, able to tolerate a further therapy, this would be one that we would certainly consider based on the fact that we expect about a third of patients to have some benefit from treatment. How about abstract 4483? I always like the name Aurora kinase inhibitor. It just sounds kind of cool. But anyhow... This is a phase one study looking at MLN8237, which is an Aurora kinase inhibitor combined with varinostat in lymphoid malignancies. How about this paper? Right. So as many may know, the Aurora A kinase is a inhibitor of the mitotic mechanism and shuts down proliferation. So clearly this is a lot of expectation and hope that it would be a good inhibitor of more highly proliferative and aggressive diseases. And a number of studies have been or currently are ongoing in T-cell lymphomas and in some of the highly aggressive, highly proliferative lymphomas. So this trial looked to see whether adding it to varinostat would be a promising approach. And that was based on some preclinical data that showed really good synergy between HDAC inhibitors and the Aurora A kinase inhibitors. 
So in this trial, 23 patients were included. A variety of different histologies basically showed that there were some side effects seen, but many of them were very similar to what had been seen in the single agent treatment trials. And the results, however, and again, recognizing this is a phase one trial in very heavily pretreated and heterogeneous patients were modest. I think they saw one response in those patients. So I think still some work to be done to work out if this is the optimal combination to use. What about this agent specifically in terms of other studies or other developments of it right now? Do you know anything about it? Right. It is being tested in a very large randomized T-cell trial against investigator choice. And that's a very bold study. It, again, will tell us whether in the relapsed and refractory setting, this agent is one that comes out well against other kind of more typical regimens used in those patients.